the city was broke. It was dirty and dangerous and corrupt, and all those things were true. So we went to this meeting, and I said, you know, we've got this new mayor coming in. And I said, and he's talking about all these amazing things, and but he's not talking about film, and we should go talk to him. And they said, okay, you do it. <laughs> You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schwindlin, and half of this episode was recorded live at the B.PHL conference this past October. There, I sat down to chat with one of the most legendary figures of Philadelphia's film industry, Sharon Pinkinson. Sharon has operated the Greater Philadelphia Film Office, which is a one-stop shop for directors, producers, actors, and crew members since the 90s. In that time, the office has generated more than $5 billion, that's billion with a B, for the city of Philadelphia, not to mention for world-famous films. And we're not just talking Rocky here. Sharon has played a huge role in bringing stars like John Travolta, Tom Hanks, Diane Kruger, and Chadwick Boseman to the city that's not New York or LA, but has still managed to foster and develop a burgeoning film community. That story, the story of Sharon Pinkinson, is now on Philly Who. Stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you so much. When Sharon Pinkinson was well into her career at the Greater Philadelphia Film Office, a 22-year-old walked into the room with a screenplay in his hand that blew Sharon's mind. The play was about a middle-aged romance. It was insightful, subtle, surprisingly well-developed for somebody who looked kind of like a kid. Later, she would continue working with this ambitious director, who today we know as M. Night Shyamalan. And it's no surprise that the two ended up working together. They were both obsessed with Philadelphia. And Sharon has loved Philly literally for as long as she can remember. My earliest memory was two years old. I know that's crazy, but I really remember at two years old, we lived somewhere near the boulevard and I'm an only child and I was very upset because I had friends and I didn't want to move. And I remember crying and crying and there was a little lawn in the front. And I went over and hugged the telephone pole right in front of my house because I didn't want to leave. It's like I'm holding on to this telephone pole. And of course, I got this horrible splinter. And of course, my mother was hysterical and they had to get the splinter out and it was moving day and I was two. And so that's yeah. that's my that's my first Philadelphia story. <laughs> Where did you move to? From there, we moved to Drexel Hill, okay. where my, my mom and dad had a little, tiny little grocery store, which failed. And I remember the first time being punished there was my mom said we had had to come into the house because it was getting dark out. And I said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I had no idea what that meant. I was this little Jewish girl, you know, who heard, heard other people saying, Jesus Christ. And I got my mouth washed out. Yeah. My dad was a traveling salesman. And they had built the turnpike not long before that, the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And all the traveling salesmen moved to Levittown because they could get to all their territories. I lived there from the time I was 5 to 15 in two different houses. The first house was a Levittowner, which was the poorest little... I was back there a few years ago scouting for a movie. And I said, oh, you know, I actually used to live there. Oh, yeah, we're 
where did you live? And I gave him the address. Next thing I knew, they took me to this house and I saw it and I started to cry. It was such a little shack and I couldn't, and you know, it was like this little place where, where I grew up. So the first house cost ten nine ninety on the GI bill and a hundred dollars down. Wow. Can you imagine that? My and my parents hundred dollar down check bounced. Oh my gosh! Wow. <laughs> yeah. So what sort of things that, did you enjoy growing up? Did you watch a lot of film? I was obsessed with from the time I was old enough to read and I went to see the movies, I stayed to read all the credits. I was fascinated by all the jobs. I couldn't believe like all the different things that people could do in the film industry. I don't know. I had no idea for many, many years later that I would know people who did all those jobs. Yeah. What types of films were you watching growing up? What oh, well, I was going to the Saturday matinee at the Levittown Shopping Center and I would watch, you know, all the cartoons and then some what the feature was, whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, Saturdays, they just dropped you off at the movie theater. It was great with all with all my friends. My grandfather was in the neckwear business and he manufactured all kinds of specialty ties and he had a factory and a bunch of people who worked in the factory. We also had stores at Third and Market. When holidays would come up, it would be Christmas or Easter or different school holidays, I had to work. So I'd have to go to, to the store and take the train in from Levittown. And was very. I was the most sophisticated kid in Levittown. I mean, I took the train into Center City. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I remember I brought a girlfriend to Center City one time, and we were driving towards City Hall on the bus to get to the other side. And she, she went like this: "How are we going to fit through that hole in City Hall?" <laughs> That's great. That's amazing. <laughs> and I just thought I was so cool. Yeah. So I said, "No, we're just going to go around it." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my grandfather was always sick. It was like he was. Uh oh, Pop Up's really sick, and he's got a gallbladder attack, and he's got a this second, it was, they told me he was always dying. And then, but he never really was until he did. And now my mother is, okay, this is really bad. And I'm going to send you to summer camp because I have to stay and take care of Pup-Up. And I went to a camp in the Poconos, Camp Sun Mountain. It doesn't exist anymore. And it was great. And I, first of all, I lost a ton of weight because I was like the fattest kid in camp. And then I ate nothing but hard-boiled eggs, I think, <laughs> all summer. I don't know. And, and I got home from camp and I had all these friends who lived in Lower Marion and in Abington. And I didn't know kids like that. And I was like, and I said, you know, this is, I got to get out of Levittown. I got home and I said, it's time. You can't make me stay here in Levittown. <laughs> we have to move to Philadelphia. At that point, both my father and my mother were, were working in Philadelphia every day. They said, okay, you know, maybe I was very powerful. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say. Only like... children are very powerful. We moved into Center City, and I've lived in Center City ever since. What was Center City like when you first moved down there? Well, I remember my parents saying, you can't go into Rittenhouse Square because there's all the hippies, really. Or no, all the beatniks. <laughs> Can, Can you, you imagine? imagine? I just was like, I just felt like I was home. It was incredible. Yeah. In, in order to move into Center City, my parents said, you're going to have to go to Girls High. If you can't get into Girls High, we're not moving. Wow. So if you come from outside of the Philadelphia school system, you have to take a test. So I don't remember the test at all. The only thing I remember is this essay, which I poured my heart out saying that I will die if I don't get into Girls High. <laughs> I have to, you know, I just wrote this like heartfelt drama story right. about how I had to go and I, I went to, so yeah, I went said to my Girls parents High. won't let me move to Philly unless exactly. you let me in. So it worked. It worked. You got in. You moved to Philadelphia. Now, after high school, you would go on to study dental hygiene, right? 
I always know I was going to go to college, but I had a boyfriend in high school and he wanted to get married like right away. And I was kind of freaked out about that. I I really liked him, (laughs) but I was very upset about it. And I just kind of, my parents, he was actually my fourth, I know this sounds crazy, but it was my fourth marriage proposal. No, third marriage proposal. And my parents got married. My mother was 17 and my father was 18 when they got married. And after I had turned down all these marriage proposals, I wanted to be a hippie. I didn't, (laughs) I didn't want to get married. My grandfather was still around. And he said, you can't go, you can't go to college. Where do you want to get your MRS degree? Which I was really offended by. And I said, no, I want to get my education. And so he said, well, you can, if you want to go to Temple, I will pay for you to go to Temple. And I applied to Temple into Penn State. And I got into Penn State main campus before I ever heard from Temple. My boyfriend, soon to be fiance, was going to Temple and said, you can't go to Penn State. Mm. And I'm thinking, I hope I don't get into Temple. (laughs) But I got into Temple and I did freshman year at Temple and I loved it. It changed my life. And I got engaged during freshman orientation. Wow. And I got married the following June. I was raised to marry a doctor and my fiance was raised to be a doctor. I actually really wanted to be a doctor. I always thought I'd be a really good doctor. I love science, but that wasn't going to be in the cards for me. So we were going to be really poor, young, married students. So I switched to the dental school and took a, got a dental hygiene yeah. degree. And then I started working as soon as I could. I was going to school full time and working part time. And then I finished up it sounds like you were sort of a lot of personal stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I know. That's why we're here. We tell stories, right? So it sounds like you were kind of meandering around a little bit to figure out what you wanted to do, who you wanted to be and where you wanted to go. Is that right? Funny thing is that I'm a very, very optimistic person. So I loved every job I've ever had. And I actually loved being a dental hygienist. I was really good at it. And, you know, I was had this hair down to my waist and I was, you know, full blown hippie with a black armband and an MIA. I still have my MIA bracelet, by the way. Does anybody (laughs) still have their MIA bracelets? Major Emmett McDonald. Let's put it this way. I've got married at 18. I called myself the last virgin bride in America. That'll probably be the title of my book. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I was leaving the marriage as well, and I moved on, and my best friend and I, who I actually met in camp, we decided that we were going to start our own business, and we were going to take advantage, you'll love this, we were going to take advantage of the bicentennial. Okay. In 1976, which we thought this was going to be a great opportunity. And we were going to open, for any of you who remember or, or don't remember, the, the Bicentennial was a bust. It really What were you was expecting not, from the Bicentennial? Oh, I just thought, you know, there was going to be a lot of business and it was, the world was going to be looking at Philadelphia. Oh, people and, were going to come visit, and it was right. going to, there was going to be lots of opportunities for, you know, retail and businesses and stuff. And But on the Ides of March 1977, oh. we opened a boutique called Plage Tahiti. The one thing we didn't want to do was open a boutique because it seemed like such a cliche for two women to open a boutique. But we knew how to do that. I grew up in retail. She had worked in boutiques for a while and and we knew what to do. And and then the store was a sensation. Yeah. Were you nervous at all switching from being a dental hygienist to owning your own business? I've never been afraid. I'm actually very brave. (laughs) The worst thing that can happen is you'll fail and you'll do something else. 
Did you keep up while you were a dental hygienist with making clothes and designing clothes? Because you had that, you know, when you were growing up, you were spinning ties and you had the family business. Did that remain a part of your life this whole time? I love to make things from scratch. And so, yes, I would make my, I would make my own clothes. I, I love doing it. If I couldn't afford a Chanel suit, I would make a Chanel suit. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and I actually still have that suit that I made because yeah. <laughs> I can't bear to give it away. The late 70s, the early 80s, there was a very famous fashion designer from Philadelphia called Willie Smith. And Willie Smith died from AIDS. And he was amazing. But before that, he was making these one-size-fits-all blazers. And everybody wanted these big, everything was oversized. And I had the tiniest little customers. I mean, they were very, very small. And a one-size-fits-all blazer doesn't fit a petite woman. So I thought, you know what, let me see if I can make a smaller version, a one-size-fits-all blazer that's very fashionable, that's for a smaller woman. And I made a dozen. And I sold them that day. And I said, I think we have something here. And so I started designing the Plush Tahiti collection. Wow. So then how did you wind up working your way into designing costumes for film? It was a very, very difficult time financially in those days because their interest rates were incredibly high, mm. really incredibly high. And so we had this business and we had um, enormous bills to pay for our loans. At the same time, my friends were all getting sick the garment industry and those who worked in it were being decimated with this disease that nobody knew what was going on and what was causing it. And I would get calls after a while from friends crying and telling me that they're in pain and how sick they are. And honestly, it was the most horrible time of my life. I actually lost my best girlfriend to AIDS. I finally said, I got to get out of this business. This is too hard. I can't. I've got to, I've got to move on. Do you want to tell the MMR story? The MMR story is a riot. You yeah. have to hear this. My very first commercial is WMMR, and it was a morning zoo commercial. And so they wanted me to dress all the DJs as, are you ready for this? Sandinista gorillas. Does anybody remember that war? <laughs> so I could go to the Army-Navy store and dress them all up in some, you know, Army uniforms. Yeah. But the hard part was I also had to dress the chimp. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so let me just tell you something about chimps. Chimps have really big heads, so you can't use the hat. You have to make, have to make them the hat. They have really long arms, really squat legs. And I was like, don't get that thing near me to his uh, handler. I said, get me all the measurements. The, the chimp really liked me. It was like, no, I'm not <laughs> going anywhere near the chimp. And I got all the measurements, and I put together you know, a uniform. I like cut up all these other uniforms and made one that would, would fit the chimp. So your first gig, you're, you're sizing a chimp. Yeah. <laughs> That's <great. laughs> So now in these early gigs, are you thinking, thinking that you want to get further and further into the film industry? At oh, this I point, loved or you it. Just... I was in heaven. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. I had a customer who would come in the store twice a year. I didn't know he was a director. He was mostly television commercials, but he would come into the store to buy a, his wife a birthday present and a Christmas present. And he heard that I had done one commercial, a WMMR commercial. It was the first one I ever did. And so he hired me to do a commercial with him. And I became first call in Philadelphia because of all the people who were stylists, or of the few people who were stylists, they could all go out and shop for things. But if they couldn't find them, they couldn't make them. Ah, and so, so I was technical. So <laughs> if I could, I could make it. 
that director that I mentioned uh, that was in my store was Jeff Burry, Jeffrey Burry. And he was doing lots and lots of commercials at the time. I loved the camaraderie of working with a group of talented people where everybody had skills. I learned a lot of new skills. I loved, I loved every second of it. So it wasn't too long until you started working on feature films. Now, what was, what was it like to work on a film in Philadelphia in the early 90s? Usually films did not come to Philadelphia at all. I mean, they would come for you know, a week or two weeks and they would say that they're in Philadelphia, but then they'd go back to L.A. And so I got my feet wet, you know, in some of those. But then right around the time that Rocky V was being shot, I got Mannequin 2 on the move. <laughs> and I had never been a costume supervisor. I didn't know what a costume supervisor was, but I reached out to the costume designer on that show and I asked him for a job. He interviewed me and I sold him a bill of goods that I would be the costume supervisor. And I was great. I learned all these new skills and continuity on a level that I was not familiar with before. Right. And we had to go to work in Wanamaker's. So we worked all night wow. and lunch was, uh, you know, one o'clock in the morning. Wow. It sounds like you enjoyed that. It was great, except it was exhausting. And I cried for a week when it was over. Oh my yeah. gosh. Working overnight for a couple of months. And I had a little girl, a single parent, little girl. It was hard. My goodness. So it was around that time that you started to recognize opportunity in Philadelphia, right? Yeah. That that wasn't being fulfilled. Can you tell me about how you recognize it and then what you did about it? Well, it was clear that Philadelphia was going broke. Politics were heating up. I was always interested in politics. And then there was this guy named Ed Rendell, who was running against Frank Rizzo, who was running again for mayor. And for those of you who lived here and remember then, he suddenly dropped dead during the campaign, but towards the end of it. And it was too late to bring in another Republican right. candidate. And Ed Rendell had been a district attorney, and he was talking about economic development and cleaning up the city and bringing in new businesses and getting rid of crime and uh, really economic development. I mean, the city was broke. It was dirty and dangerous and corrupt, and all those things were true. And at that time, he was, in his campaigning, he was talking about tourism and fresh money and the Avenue of the Arts and talking about the arts, but he wasn't talking about film. So by that time, I was a, a union. I was in the union. Uh, actually, I held three cards at one time. And I was on the executive committee of the IATSE local that was based in Philadelphia. And I was the only woman on, the, on that executive board. And so we went to this meeting and I said, you know, that we've got this new mayor coming in because Frank Rizzo had already passed away. And I said, and he's talking about all these amazing things, and, and he, but he's not talking about film and we should go talk to him. And they said, okay, you do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, well, I didn't know. So, okay. Sharon was terrified of meeting face-to-face, one-on-one, with the city's new mayor. She admits it herself, but she knew she had to act fast. See, Philadelphia already had a film office. The city government launched it back in the 1980s during the Wilson Good administration. But Sharon knew that hotline, and she knew the city needed something better, more aggressive, more dynamic, something that would root for the filmmakers of Philadelphia. 
the number that I would call regularly to speak to the civil servant secretary, Joan Gerstel, who would answer the phone. We'd say, is anything coming in? And she said, oh, yeah, we're getting lots of calls. Just keep calling back. It's like, you know, nothing was ever really coming in except for commercials and occasional parts of shows. And I thought, this is a disaster. You know, the film industry is blowing up all over the country and we have nobody, you know, nobody doing that job. So I decided, okay, I was going to reach out to mayor-elect Ed Rendell and I would better come up with a plan what I was going to say to him. So I sat down and I wrote a proposal for the greater Philadelphia film office because in those days, Everything was all about regionalism. It was like flavor of the month. You know, everybody wanted to, to the region to work together, not the city being totally separate from the four suburban counties. And I thought that was a great idea. And I thought we should have a regional film commission. It, and we have to get everybody to get it funded so that I and my friends could get more work. Right. And that it would bring all this great business attraction into Philadelphia. It would make people more excited about the city if we had movies here. Um, so... I uh, I asked him for a meeting, and I guess he heard I was a cute blonde. <laughs> I got a meeting. I didn't know him. I was scared to death. And I, I had a meeting at the Palm, and I sat down, and of course, he had just won the election, so everybody was coming over to talk to him, and I got him, you know, finally got him to talk to me for a few minutes, and I handed him my proposal. He, he said to me, um, I need a business plan on my desk by Monday with a phone coming out of his mouth. Do you all know him? He's, I mean, he's amazing. So he scared the living daylights out of me. And, but he asked me for a business plan. Well, I had owned a business. So I said, I'll go home and I'll write the business plan. I need it on my desk by Monday. I was like, okay. So I sat down at my daughter's Apple IIc computer. Wow. And I typed out a business plan and I sent it to him. And next thing I knew, he was talking about rejuvenating the Philadelphia Film Office, and everybody started applying for the job. Wow. Now, did he immediately put you in charge? No, he didn't. And I didn't want to be in charge. I just wanted more work. Wow. I wanted, you know, I wasn't thinking about that job. I was just putting out that proposal. But when I heard that people who were applying for the job knew nothing about the industry, and literally I've said this, they thought that it was, you know, going out for lunch, you yeah. know, um, with actors. And I, that's what they thought the job was. It would be a cushy little job. I was like, oh no, this is a disaster. I knew it meant being able to know what kind of services we could get from the city and, you know, what city-owned locations we'd be able to work in and kind of set up new standards. And I mean, I, I just knew instantaneously because I'd been working already eight years wow. in film. Wow. I didn't know, but I figured it out. You know, yeah. I had certainly had some ideas and, um, and I knew what they were doing in other places that we weren't doing in yeah. Philadelphia. So you get the keys to the office. You, I get you, the keys to the you office. You get put in charge. A dollar a year and my health care. Wow. And he said, I said, Mayor, I can't, I can't do that. I'm a single mom with a little girl. He said, well, I'm going to help you raise the money because the city was so broke. I mean, everything was like private, you know, private money and deputy mayors who were all um, wealthy men who supported Ed Rendell's election, who then got all these jobs as deputy mayors. And they were smart and they went to work. And it would, you know, I mean, it was great because they paid them a dollar a year in their health care. Yeah. And they got all this expertise from business people. But I said, I can't do that. He said, I'm going to help you raise the money. So I said, Mayor, I will do it for 60 days. But if I, we haven't raised the money to pay me retroactively by 60 days, I got to go get a commercial. 
you know, I got to go, I got to go back and get my career back. And on the 64th day, we raised enough money to pay me retroactively and through to July 1, and we became a part of a regional economic development organization called Greater Philadelphia First, which ultimately became part of the chamber. It merged into the chamber in wow. 2000, and that's how we got it started. So what was the first thing that you did then to go drum up Philadelphia as a place to film? Well, the first thing I did was Charlie Isdale and I went to LA and he took me around and introduced me to, he had he had been there on his own dime, I think, wow. you know, once before and he took me around and, and showed me the ropes. And we set up meetings and we met with people in the studios and we talked about how Philadelphia was now going to become a film friendly place. And I told him about all the things that I was going to do and how easy it was gonna be to get um, permits. In fact, we weren't going to have permits. We were going to have a license agreement that would include everything all in one document. And we would have pre-production meetings and we would organize the crew and, you know, get work for these people. I mean, it was we whatever we needed to do. Yeah. It's it's a can do kind of business. And There's no they... no's. There's only how much and how fast. <laughs> how did they respond to this new information? Well, I mean, they were skeptical, but we started getting business. The most amazing thing was, um, I got to tell you a story that's really, can I just tell you, I want to tell you this one story. Okay, yeah, go. So my very first day of work as a film commissioner was supposed to be, I got appointed in the middle of January, 1992. And I got a call the week before I was supposed to start saying, Sharon, there's a, there's a, a yeah, location scout for a big movie that's coming to town and he wants somebody to take him around. Like, can you start now? Like tomorrow? And I was, I had no idea how to, to be a location scout at all, but you know, I certainly knew the city. So this location manager was very seasoned and very kind, was doing a film with Eddie Murphy called The Distinguished Gentleman. And he was looking for Washington, D.C. locations. And they couldn't shoot in Washington. It's just too hard. And they were looking for like a Capitol building and government buildings and all that. And I said, so like, okay. So I took him around. I told him he knew it was my first day. And I took him around. And he really, we didn't really, the, 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 the thing that would win is if we had a Capitol building. But we didn't have a Capitol building. And the reality is they actually shot it in Harrisburg, which oh, is wow. a beautiful Capitol building. But I was trying to get the work here. And finally, it was like the end of the day, and I knew I hadn't nailed it, but he was very, very nice. So I took him to everything that even vaguely looked like a, like Washington, D.C. buildings, and it was good. It just didn't have the capital. So, oh, so I had one last place I was going to take him to, which was the Academy of Music. So we get to the Academy of Music, and we knock on the door, and nobody knows who I am at this point. And I talk my way in, and they said, the guy was very nice to me. He said, look, there's a rehearsal going on. You have to be really quiet. You can't sit within eyesight of the person who didn't want to tell us who it was, who was rehearsing. And he and I go like in the first balcony, sit front and center. And who's there but Luciano Pavarotti. I got to tell you something. That's one of my favorite stories in the whole world. Wow. The two of us watched him rehearse for like an hour and a half. You got like a private show. In a chair like this with napkins, white napkins all across him because he spits when, or he's, well, he spat when he does, <laughs> when, and, and it was the most, and we just sat there like saying, wow, this, that was my first day. Wow. That location manager is still around and maybe every few years we'll somehow bump into each other yeah. or, 
some communication. He said, remember your first day? He said wow. that I'll never, he said that was my best day of scouting. That's too. Awesome. Yeah. Let's talk about the Jonathan Demi film. So I got a call from a producer named Ron Bozeman and he and Jonathan Demi and the whole Jonathan Demi team had just finished, had just gotten the Oscar for Silence of the Lambs, which was shot in Pittsburgh. And I got a call and they said, we are making another movie and, um, and we're looking at a bunch of cities. Yours is one of them. It's got to just, you know, be a city and it's a story about lawyers. That's all I know. It's a story about lawyers and uh, we'll send you a copy of the script. And the most important thing we need is a courtroom um, because it's really a courtroom drama and we've got to have this courtroom for like a long time. And I said, no problem. And I said, we have fabulous courtrooms. I mean, City Hall is like the most gorgeous courtrooms in and a director's dream. So I talked them into coming, which was not easy because Jonathan wanted to shoot. He was tired of being out of away from home and he wanted to really shoot the movie in New York, but you can't get a courtroom in New York. And Bonfire of the Vanities had just been a disaster and they had to use this horrible courtroom in New Jersey. And it was, everybody was worried about how they were going to do a courtroom drama. And I finally got them to come over through, came through 30th Street Station and we're walking towards City Hall. And I said, there's our courtroom. And they said, that's City Hall. We, and I said, yes, but it has the most gorgeous courtrooms. Well, bottom line, they fell madly in love with it. And, um, and Mayor Rendell said, yes, you can, you can do it. The courts said that we could do it. We could get courtroom 243, which is by far the most beautiful, I think, but they're all gorgeous and, and all different. And we started making a movie that was, the first version was called At Risk. The second pass on the script was called People Like Us, which is a disgusting title. And the third one, which was, which now the script was getting really good, but the third title was Probable Cause, which made no sense because it wasn't a criminal case. So it, it was a civil case. We don't have a name for the movie. It's the most incredible spirit experience of my life. Jonathan was like an old hippie and it was peace and love on the set. I've never had a more wonderful experience than working with him. And he, we became really good friends till the day he died. It, I came, we came back after Christmas to finish the film in January. He came up to me, and said, Sharon, this is lunch. We're like on the lunch thing. And, I, and he said, we've decided to call the movie Philadelphia. I thought I was going to faint. I just like the blood like rushed out of my head. I could not believe they were going to call this movie Philadelphia. Tears started to well up and I'm breathing. And I said, I have to go to call my mother. You called your mother first. <laughs> and I ran away to call my mother and tell her that they were naming the movie Philadelphia. And I thought, oh my God, though, this is going to be the end of my career because... I mean, it's my first big movie and they're calling it Philadelphia. How am I ever going to top that? I mean, can we make a movie called Ed Rendell? I didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen. Wow. But that was the beginning of, um, of it all. So I suck at time management. And that was all the time that we had for our 50 minute live session at B.PHL. But while that was a blast, we didn't get the whole story from Sharon. So I invited her back into the Philly Who studio a couple weeks later to pick up right where we left off. Now you had a vision in your head for the role that Philadelphia could play in the national, international film scene. Did other people buy into this vision that you had? Mostly not. Yeah? What, what types of things did they say to you? I, I think they thought it was folly. 
one of the major executives at Comcast Corporation, David L. Cohen, mm -hmm. who at the time was chief of staff for Ed Randell, and he thought the whole thing was completely silly. Yeah. So I recently had a meeting, I don't know, a few months ago with him, and he said, you know, Sharon, I really didn't think you were going to be able to do this, and I'm just amazed at what you've done. Wow. So that was, you know, that made me feel great. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I knew it was true, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he came clean thinking Finally. that he thought very little of me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you have the self-confidence and the drive to make this happen in the face of that uncertainty, especially like the chief of staff of the mayor says, you know, or, or at least you can feel that he thinks it's not going to work. How do you have that inner drive to actually prove everyone wrong? Well, I really thought that I had a great idea and I thought other people were able to do it and I should be able to do it. And my parents told me I could do anything I wanted to do. So I, I had that confidence and I had the vision. I knew I, I just instinctively knew what to do, I think. Yeah. yeah. In that first year, a young filmmaker walked into my office and introduced himself and said that he was Night Shyamalan and that he was going to be a really important filmmaker. And he hadn't made his first film yet, but he was planning one and he was going to make all his films in Philadelphia. And I mean, he was 22 years old. Wow. And I took one look at him and I listened to his story. And when he left, I said, there's our next star. You believed it. I knew it right away. Why? In fact, well... I'll tell you, he, he gave me this script, and I read the script, and I thought, this is impossible that this 22-year-old wrote this middle-aged love story that resonated so much mm. with me. And I said, he's, I, I now believe in reincarnation. Mm. He's Indian, it's re, he was reincarnated, <laughs> and he knew exactly what it was like to have a middle-aged romance. Wow. I mean, I was just blown away. Yeah. And I was telling everybody, this is, you know, he's, he's it. Yeah. I just felt that, yeah. you know, I'm not, I think that people do feel that I wasn't the only one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he sold that script for the most amount of money that anyone had ever sold a script for at that point. The film was never made. They wouldn't let him direct the film because they paid him a lot of money, seven figures. For, I think it was a million dollars. No one had ever gotten that much for a spec script. And uh, they didn't want him to direct it because he was would have been a first-time director. Right. So it sat on the shelf, and they tried to get other directors, and it's back and forth for years, but it's 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 actually never been made. It's never been no. made. No. So then what was his first film that you saw? It was a film called... It was Rosie O'Donnell, Dennis Leary, and Dana Delaney starred in his first film, and it was a story that was shot in his own school wow. that he went to about a little boy who lived with his sister and his parents and his grandfather. And over the summer, I think he was in fourth grade or something, over the summer, his grandfather dies. And he can't figure out what happened to his grandfather. And he's this is he wants to understand death is really what it's about. It's this beautiful little story. Um, and that was that was the first film. Yeah. Was that the first time that you saw sort of that magic that you felt, you know, when you first met M. Night, that you saw it actually come to fruition? I mean, how can you not talk about The Sixth Sense? I mean, The Sixth Sense is really the film that launched his career, it really put Philadelphia on the map because it was clearly a Philadelphia story. You know, people were saying, with for the movie Philadelphia, people were saying, oh, but it really 
was this law firm in this other city. Everybody had a story in every other city. Yeah, it could have been uh, anywhere. Thinking, it, you know, it really could have been anywhere. In fact, Jonathan had said, just to go back for a second, Jonathan Demi, may he rest in peace, said um, that um, he originally wanted to call it, when they came up with Philadelphia, he wanted it to be Philadelphia dot, 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 as in America. Oh, And wow. then his team talked him out of yeah, it and good, they made thankfully. it just Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> but still, the point is, you know, that that story could have really happened in any city, but The Sixth Sense was a Philadelphia story. Absolutely. It was a Philadelphia story. And it was thrilling to work on. I mean, we knew that it was really going to be something um, very, very special. And uh, and uh, obviously, I mean, I think it, I think it grossed $660 million at the box office, which was unheard of in those days. And the reason that it, it did so well was because everybody paid money to go see it the second time to see what they missed. Right. Because once you get the twist... It's like, how did I miss that? It's a totally different movie. Everybody said, well, yeah, we have to go see it again. A few years later, there was another high-profile movie that wanted to come to Philadelphia to film. That movie was to depict a long, elaborate treasure hunt chasing clues left by the founding fathers of the United States. That movie, National Treasure, would be a smash hit, but it almost wasn't actually filmed at Independence Hall. In order to make that happen, Sharon had to get extra creative. We have a, a national park, which is the Independence National Park. and. Therefore, it's run by the park, the National Park Service. And so it's not city property. It is their property. So in order to film there, you have to get a permit from the National Park Service. And, you know, they said you can't shoot at the park unless it's tied directly to what actually happened in Independence National Park. Had to be historically accurate. You can't just make a fictional... And Nicholas Cage did not steal the Declaration no. of Independence. <laughs> so he did not. not. So we started out with no. So in in my business, no is just the first thing. Yeah. It's it's not no. It's how much, how fast, how, you know, what 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 can we do to turn a no into a maybe and then a yes? And so we met with the National Park Service and we said, and they said, listen, there's just nothing, you know, oh, it's going to be great for tourism, you know, it's all this pitch. And then how would it be good for tourism? Our tourism has to be about, you know, this is our mission. And no one, no one goes up into the tower of the bell tower of um, of Independence Hall. I had never been there. No one I knew had ever been there at all. I don't think anybody had been there except Park Service right. people. They just don't allow it. And the story was written for what happens in the bell tower, and it's all a part of the chase and hiding and everything. So the way to convince them was ultimately to say, what about if you provide for us a or work with us on a we'll we'll do all of the work. You guide us and we'll do a supplemental story about the Independence National Historical Park, that will be a part of the DVD. There'll be the extras in the DVD, and they they went for wow. it. Just tell me a little bit about, I guess, the genesis of that idea. Was it was it like a last resort thing? Like, how do we make this happen? Like, whose idea was it to come up with that? Because that's just such a good example of, like, negotiation and 
you know, finding a way to make two parties happy, you know, to, to make something happen that was unlikely, that can be used in film or even outside of film, just in people's everyday lives. So, I mean, what was it like to actually come to that agreement with them? How did the idea come up? How did the negotiation happen? Anything that happens like that in in my history, in my business, is, is always a, a people who are willing to have a conversation, who sit around a table together. So it's a, a multiple people talking through what do you need? What do I need? What do we need? How do we find that happy place yeah. for everyone? And it's a skill. Yeah. Were there any particularly tough times where you maybe didn't see a clear path ahead and, you know, things weren't looking so good for Philly when it comes to the film scene? Well, I can tell you that in in the mid-90s, the Canadian government decided to offer incentives for filmmakers, producers in the United States, offered them a, an incentive in the Canadian government, and then each of the provinces um, added on to that, and we suddenly had what we film commissioners called that giant sucking sound when all the production from the West Coast or from L.A. went up to Vancouver and all the production from the East Coast, predominantly New York, went up to Toronto. And then every country in the world started incentives. I mean, now there's incentives everywhere. I mean, I even helped in Lithuania and in South Africa by wow. on trips that, that I went there to help them internationalize their film businesses and start incentives in those countries. It was disaster in the United States. And the U.S. is the only country in the world that doesn't have a national film commission. Wow. The only one. The only well, the only one that I know of. I mean, I think they have one in every single country. But because the film industry is truly an American industry and it, it grew up organically and we have all these different film offices in every state and in right. most cities, there is no representation at all in Washington, D.C. So as a result of that, there was all we film commissioners were like, what are we going to do? There's nobody to talk to in Washington about helping us with this problem because it was it was nationwide. And ultimately, we had to start with our own state legislators to develop a, a tax credit program in each state. And the first state was uh, the first two states in 2003 were New Mexico and Louisiana. Mm. And then five states the next year, of which Pennsylvania was one of them. Now, you played a big role in that, right? Yeah. I mean, sure. Had you had any experience working with, like, government and tax codes and all these different things, you know, that could make your head spin? Or uh, Honestly, it was, um, it was a real learning curve. And it was extremely challenging. And, we, you know, we wanted the business back. And we just worked on it. And we... I helped write the law. I mean, everybody, mm. there are a lot of really smart people who write law that were not me, but I knew what we needed to have. And there were many other film commissioners around the country that were doing the same thing. And we had talked about it for years yeah. as a group about how do we solve this problem of runaway production, which is what it was generally known as. And then in 2004, Pennsylvania passed the incentives and Correct. did it bring the production back? Well, it did. I mean, the, the first year, you know, was a, a very small program. And then there was a rebate for one year. And then in 2007, we got essentially the program that we have now. So it worked. Yes. It worked. That's great. Yes. But you know, we were always 
you know, feeling like a second class city because most of the production was always going to be in LA and New York started getting really strong. You know, it used to be mostly just commercials and um, TV and suddenly they were making a, a lot of movies. So there was a lot of competition. Baltimore was very strong for a while and a number of other states were really pumping muscle. This year, it's $70 million. The very first year, in 2007, we got $75 million. Oh, wow. It's gone down. Yeah. So imagine. Wow. We were $60 million for a couple of years and then $65 million. And this, this last go-round, we thought we were going to get $125 million and all we got was an additional $5 million, which wow. isn't enough to entice one more movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure production costs haven't exactly gone down. Either. No, no, no. And now is really the golden age of our industry because of streaming television. Really? The pipeline is so enormous that we've been very, very busy. This year has been phenomenal so far. Let's yeah. talk about that because, you know, just as a lay person living in Philadelphia, I feel like first off that, you know, walking around the city, it's so exciting. I walk through some sort of shoot and there's just this buzz around it. Like, oh, like this is, you know, Chadwick Boseman's new movie right. or, you know what I mean? Something it's opening like, soon. Yeah, is yes, it? That uh -huh. one? I think it was on maybe 20th Street and they had exactly. you know, decked out, you know, a, a couple of stores that looked totally different. It was so, it's and it's just exciting to be around that. This summer, we had Idris Elba here on a film with the Neighborhood Film Company, which is a Philadelphia production company awesome. for a film called Concrete Cowboys, which is based on the Fairmont Park Black Cowboy history. Mm. And it's a great, great story. It's fictional, but it's based on certainly what the Fairmont Park Cowboys are all about. And we had Netflix's Queer Eye is in Philadelphia. That's I don't right. know if I'm allowed to say that, but oh well, no, I we just said it. it. <laughs> yeah. And we've had, of course, Dispatches from Elsewhere. It's an AMC TV series that we've been shooting for months now, and they're up to their last episode. Oh, wow. So we have one more episode to do. And we've been in pre-production for quite a long while on an HBO series called Mayor of Easttown. Wow. Uh, Mayor being nicknamed for Mary, like yo, oh. like yo, Mayor. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. I thought, um, I thought you said Mayor. <laughs> May, I know people get very confused. Yeah. It's M A R E, which is like short for Mary. Right. And she goes by Mayor, and and the she is Kate Winslet. Oh my gosh. So, and so they'll be in town shooting. They'll be here probably till May. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So why is it booming so much right now in Philadelphia? Well, like I said, we have a great incentive. And if you can access the, the incentive before it runs out in any fiscal year, then you've got, you know, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. But we have so little that this year, you normally, our fiscal year starts July 1. And normally, we run out of money by mid-November. This year, we got a call in August, mid-August telling us that we were out of money for the year. One month. And that's a disgrace. Wow. That's it's incredible. A, it's just a disgrace. And, and we had a hearing yesterday down at the Museum of the American Revolution and a big hearing with legislators, the um, Democratic House Policy Committee called a hearing on the film tax credit. We were all testifying that the MPAA, the, all the unions... Uh, filmmakers wow. like Knight and, and Nancy Glass, other somebody who came who had made a movie called Made in Chinatown last summer or last spring, I guess it was, did not get his tax credit, even though he applied for it. Oh, and wow. he wanted to testify, which is just awful. So, yeah, we're we're constantly fighting for more tax credits. So it sounds like even though it's booming, it's being held back. Oh, Absolutely. 
One of the things that I'd, I'd really like to point out about our industry, and it's something that I talked about yesterday during the hearing, is that people who don't get it, you know, the tax credits and incentivizing this business is because they think this business is a bunch of fluff. I mean, mm -hmm. they imagine that it's not real business, that it's a couple of makeup artists and hairdressers and actors who are getting all of the tax credit money, which of course they don't at all. You know, it just reduces the cost of making the film. And if, if they don't get it, they go someplace where they will get it. Our business is not part-time. Our business is full-time. It's full-time when we have an incentive. Mm -hmm. And it's not fluff. We are manufacturers. We're no different than manufacturing or construction. So people who work in construction, union members who work in construction, go from construction site to construction site. Nobody ever calls them part-time workers. Mm -hmm. People who work in factories, you know, the same thing. People work in convention centers. There's conventions and then there's sometimes there's not conventions. Right. But those are labor yeah. intensive jobs. And so we have so many different skills that, you know, every imaginable skill, whether you're a nurse or a producer or a camera operator or a, or a chef, a fashion designer or a seamstress or um, an electrician or a painter or a carpenter. I mean, you I, it's almost impossible to name a skill that we don't use. Yeah. So I think that that's really the point and that what we manufacture is entertainment. And the entertainment that we manufacture in the United States is really about our culture and we export our culture around the world. Yeah. That's our biggest export. The whole world watches U.S. entertainment. Yeah. 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 Why wouldn't we fund that machine, right? That manufacturing plant. And when we do it in Philadelphia or in this or in southeastern Pennsylvania, which is what we represent here, we are impacting tourism. We're impacting the restaurant business. Mm. We're impacting the cool factor yep. of Philadelphia. Everybody wants to live in a city where they make movies. Mm -hmm. And so what we are providing is something that money cannot buy, and that is civic pride. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho and join the email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. Here are so many thanks to everybody who helped make this episode happen, including Ari Kushner, Karen Copeland, Dan Witzer, and everybody at Intercom, the Greater Philadelphia Film Office, and of course, B.PHL. And here's even more thanks to Philly Who's patrons. Sam Schwartz, Josh Koppelman, Bob Moore, Alex Hillman, Vanessa Generelli, Ryan Fitzgerald, and Matt Glick. Philly Who is a Q9 production. The second half of this episode was recorded in the Philly Who studio, powered by CIC, and was hosted and produced by me with associate production by Angela Gervasi, Kelly Schmidlin, and Colleen Schmidlin, editing and mixing by Max Graham, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Until next time. <laughs>